Good morning. Have you ever thought what your life would be like before you came to know Jesus? I've thought about it a bit, and I think I would be uh, quite arrogant, um, a bit brash, uh, ruthless, rather competitive, um, and uh, a good deal of other things. Actually, a few of my friends say I'm quite a bit like that anyway. But this morning, as we look at the life of Paul, the Apostle Paul, we're going to look at what his life was like before he became a Christian, before he became a follower. He wouldn't have been called Paul then. He would have been called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Well, it's about 30 years ago since I visited Tarsus. And I can tell you it's a pretty unremarkable town. Bev and I visited the town um, when uh, we were following in the footsteps of St. Paul and travelling across the eastern Mediterranean in a rather unreliable Renault car. Uh, You can still see the house where Paul was born, supposedly, and there's a well there. But frankly, there's not much else to see. And I guess a lot has changed over 2,000 years. What hasn't changed is the fact that it's a long way from Jerusalem and a long way from the Jerusalem temple. Now, Paul's ancestors uh, were children of the diaspora. They had been driven out of Jerusalem by the Assyrians and later by the Babylonians hundreds of years beforehand. And like many dispersed communities, they would have hung on to their traditions very importantly. In fact, it's true that for many dispersed peoples, they're often more traditional than the people who are left behind, in this case, in Jerusalem. So following the Jewish laws and following in particular the Talmud, the Jewish scriptures, would have been incredibly important to Paul's parents and to him. Now, in the passage that you heard Emma read, Paul describes himself as a zealot. So not a word we think would be complimentary today. But zealotry and the tradition of zealotry goes back a long way in Jewish traditions. Back to Abraham, back to Ezekiel, and back to a man you've almost certainly never heard of called Phineas. Now, if you read Numbers 25, you hear the remarkable story about how when the Jews were in the Acacia Grove, they um, um, decided to have sex with Moabite women. The Bible doesn't pull its punches, folks. And while the women were enjoying the sex, they were also encouraging the men to follow Moabite gods which infuriated God Almighty, who in turn instructed Moses to um, get the ringleaders and have them publicly executed. Well, with spectacular bad timing, at exactly the point that Moses is instructing his judges to do just that, a man, a Jewish man, decides to take a Moabite woman into his tent to have a bit of a slap and tickle. Phineas, who of course is a zealot in his own right, takes a spear and thrusts it right through the man and into the stomach of the woman who's lying underneath him. 
I mean, honestly, folks, if the Bible were made into a film, it would definitely get an X rating. And I find it quite amusing that if you look at uh, Psalm 106, uh, where this incident is also recorded, it uses slightly more gentle language and talks about Phineas intervening or interceding in this event. It's the kind of intercession we could all do without. Another example of Jewish zealotry um, is Judas Maccabeus. Now, in AD 64, what happened is a Syrian king called Antiochus um, decided he would prevent the Jews from worshipping in the temple. He just stopped them going into it. But as if that weren't bad enough, he took a pig's head and he put it in the temple. Terrible defilement. I mean, a great atrocity and deep offence to the Jews and not without consequences. For Judas Maccabeus, whose story is told in the book of Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha of our Bible, got together a group of soldiers and he drove out Antiochus troops, even though he had far fewer people. It was a great example of Jewish zealousness and something that would have been very much in the mind of Saul. So Saul's life as a Jew was characterised by zeal. He would have followed the laws, he would have observed the Sabbath, he would have been careful with the food laws, he would have even tied parts of the scriptures to his arms and perhaps his forehead as a sign of his orthodoxy. And because he was bright, he was sent to Jerusalem by his parents to study under Gamaliel, one of the finest Jewish rabbis that there was. And it was there that he heard about Jesus. How outrageous that this carpenter from Galilee, of all places, this carpenter should claim to be the chosen one, the Messiah, that he said he would destroy the temple and in three days it would be rebuilt. He drove the money changers out of the temple and he even said that in him heaven and earth came together. I mean, so fortunate that at least he had been crucified. But now, now his followers were saying he'd risen from the dead. Now his followers were saying he was triumphant over the grave. It was an outrage for a Jewish zealot. And it must have fired up the young Saul in a very powerful way. And then there was Stephen. We read in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He was a very loyal Jew, actually, very respected in the Jewish community. But he became a Christian and he found faith in Christ. And Jewish followers who were offended by this made up stories about it and falsely accused him of saying that Abraham wasn't the person that he was. And so they decided to stone him to death. Even though it broke all the rules, the Jews actually couldn't stone people to death without Roman approval and they didn't have that. Nevertheless, they did it. And as Stephen stood in the pit before the first throne was stone, he said, I can see heaven opened and the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Luke in Acts describes Stephen's face as shining 
as he said this. And even though Paul approved of it, even though Saul was there with the cloaks at his feet approving of this stoning, I think this was a turning point for him. Because at this moment, I think as he looked into the face, the shining face of Stephen, he must have surely thought, there may be something in this. Well, next week, when we hear what happened on the road to Damascus, we'll see how that beginning of a transformation comes to a conclusion as Saul commits his life to Christ. But now... It's a long time later. It's actually 30 years later. AD 53. And Paul is in big trouble. He's had three successful years in Ephesus, preaching, and many people have become Christians as a result. But his popularity has backfired. And the local silversmiths, believing that his... Um, Preaching about the one true God will undermine their um, ability to market Diana of Ephesus with silver images have created an enormous riot in this theatre. I've stood several times in this theatre in Ephesus. It's enormous. And it was filled at the time with people. And as a result of this, we believe Paul was imprisoned afterwards. It was a very difficult time for him. Not only had his ministry in Ephesus come to an end in such a violent and worrying way, but now he was trapped in prison and receiving news that another church close to his heart in Corinth were deeply upset and offended by a second letter that he had written to them. And incidentally, that's a letter that is lost, so we'll never know what he said. There's Paul, dejected and in prison. But you know, they say that when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. This is one zealous Jew who's become a Christian. And what does he do? He goes to the depths of his faith. He goes to the roots of his belief. We think that during his time in prison in Ephesus, Saul, Paul, wrote some of his most powerful letters. He wrote a personal letter to Philemon, the owner of a, a, a slave, a runaway slave called Onesimus. He wrote probably to the church in Ephesus itself. He certainly wrote to Colossae and he wrote the letter to the Philippians, one of my favourites. And in this letter, he says amazing things. He's a completely changed man. If others, he says, have got confidence in their own efforts, I've even more. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one, a member of the Pharisees, demanding the strictest obedience to the Jewish laws, zealous. I harshly persecuted the Christians. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. But, he says... I once thought these things were valuable, that they mattered. Now, I think they're worthless. Everything is worthless compared to knowing Christ. For his sake, he says, I've discarded everything and I count it all garbage. Pretty strong stuff. And it prompts me to ask you a question. What about us? 
How zealous are we? You know, I think we can be proud that in the 21st century, if you look at some of the main uh, movements of social justice, it's Christians that have been behind them. So if you look at all the work that's been done recently on modern slavery, who's led that work? Christians. If you look at um, food banks, and um, for people who've fallen uh, you know, through the cracks of the welfare state, who's really driven that work in communities across our land? Christians. If you think about support for the family and promoting the family as one of the basic building blocks of society, who has done that? Christians. And if you think of the more controversial area of refugees, and it is a difficult area, but who has led that work primarily? Helping refugees settle in this community, not exclusively, but mainly Christians. So we can be very proud of that. And yet, especially in this time of lockdown, as we're sipping our coffee, listening to online services, what about our zeal? Where's that? Where is our zeal for outreach? Where is our zeal for doing the 101 jobs that any church need to be done? Not all of them glamorous, but all of them worthwhile and purposeful. If I'm honest and I look at my own life, I think I've lost some of that initial zeal that I had when I became a Christian and which Paul so strongly demonstrates in his own life. And there's something else too. Jesus used a lovely story to talk about the value of the kingdom of God and knowing him as saviour. He talked about the pearl of great price. He tells a story about a pearl collector, a man presumably who knew his pearls. And one day he sees an amazing pearl. Now, this is no ordinary pearl. This is the best pearl he's ever seen. And we don't know what the price was, but we imagine it was not as much as it should have been. It was still expensive, though. So the pearl collector, well, he sells everything. Maybe he sells his car. Maybe he sells his house. Maybe he sells a lot of his clothing. He sells pretty well everything that he's got for the one pearl of great price because he knows the value of it. He knows what it's worth. That's the picture that Jesus gives of the value of the kingdom of heaven and a life with him. I have to tell you, folks, that a week ago, our house was burgled. We came home, having taken a meal to friends of ours. We'd not been out that long to find that burglars had taken a sledgehammer to our patio doors and smashed their way into the house. They'd been in every room, in every cupboard, in every drawer. It was chaos. As we walked through the debris of our house, we tried to make a note of what had gone. All my camera gear, all my wife's jewelry. Some of it important, some of it sentimental, some of it valuable. But, you know, it's just stuff. 
And as we reflected with sadness and outrage and a sense of violation that anybody who's been burgled would know instantly, we said, it's just stuff. It doesn't really matter. It especially doesn't matter compared to the things that do. Our love for one another and our love and the presence of the Lord Jesus in our lives. When I compare it to his presence, his purpose, the comfort that he brings, I can cope with the loss. What would my life have looked like without Jesus? It would have looked very different indeed. If I'm honest, if I look at my humble achievements in life, I can't say that they're rubbish, that they're garbage, that they're valueless. But I can say that compared to knowing Christ in the way that Saul the Zealot came to know Christ, in the way that, gosh, 40 years ago, I came to know Christ, well, they're just not up there at all. And in comparison to the joy of knowing him, they just fall away. So good people of Bessels Green, there you have it. Paul's love of Jesus made everything else seem unimportant. Saul's zeal redirected to serve Jesus enabled him to change the world. So what's stopping us? Shall we just pray? Lord Jesus, as we look at the life of Saul, as we look at the change that you brought on him, help us to have the same change brought on us. Help us to serve you. Help us to seek opportunities to care and comfort and share you in a world in such desperate need. Amen.